Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. The last a portion of our sermon series in the book of Philippians called Be Glad. Uh, and that is uh, our 40-day campaign is coming up next week, Sunday. We're going to be kicking it off. And so if you are in a community group, do not forget to pick up one of these uh, books here. Uh, it's called The Gospel-Centered Community. It's very thin. You'll be studying it in your community groups for the next uh, however many weeks it takes you to get through it. Uh, you can actually go out to the information desk right there pick yourself up a book, uh, but we've been working really hard on this, and we know that it's going to bring a lot of fruit to the church, and so please, like, invite your friends, invite, especially, uh, you know, what I call, like, low-hanging fruit, which is Christians who are just not plugged into a church, who need more uh, Christian friendship and belonging, uh, please reach out to them. This is a perfect time for them to join our church. I've been doing the same myself. I've been reaching out to friends who just aren't attending church, who maybe believe, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's been a great time just inviting them out to church and whatnot, so we encourage you to do that. Secondly, um, you know, as we start this 40-day campaign, we're challenging you, uh, and this is something I'm challenging myself and my family to, is to fast from social media, TV, and gaming uh, from next week Sunday all the way up until Easter. That'll take about 50 days or so, okay? 50 days of a social media, TV, gaming fast. Now, I want you to pray through that, okay? Uh, be serious about that as you pray through it. Now, here's the rationale behind it, okay? Here's the spirit behind the law, if you would, okay? We don't want you to just fast. We don't want to just take away something. We actually want to add something. And if you read the book of Ephesians, Paul does this constantly. He says, let the thief no longer steal. He's taking that away. But then he says, let that person work hard and give generously to those around. So he doesn't just take away, he adds, right? And in this case, we want to take away social media. We want to take away TV, gaming. And what's going to happen is you're going to notice a lot of time is going to open up for you. A ton of it. We're talking like 10 uh, six to ten hours every single day will open up for you, okay? And what you're going to do at that time is you're going to read your Bible, you're going to pray, uh, you're going to seek the Lord, but you're also going to reach out to friends. You're going to reach out to your community group because that Saturday that you know is coming up, you can't watch TV, you can't do social media. So what you're going to do is you're going to call your friends, you're going to call uh, your community group and say, hey, let's hang out because we can't watch TV, man. Let's like look each other in the face and do something fun together. Uh, uh, if you have kids, you're going to... Uh, Engage your kids. You're going to go and play board games with your kids. You're going to take them outside, throw ball uh, in the rain maybe. But whatever the case is, you'll, you'll do that together. Uh, if you have a wife or a husband, you're going to talk to your husband or your wife. You're going to engage them. Because what happens during marriage is after a long day, we sit down on the couch, we look at the TV, we don't look at each other's faces, and we just happen to just kind of doze off or whatever. You know, we just watch our dramas or we watch our TV shows. And we're going to actively engage one another for the next a few weeks, okay? And so that's my challenge to you. And I hope that as you journal, if you're journaling, you journal through this series, I hope you see a lot of fruit that comes out of this. And so that's our challenge to you. A last thing, this is sort of unrelated to the, uh, the first two announcements, but if you are uh, uh, in here and you're unsure about Christ, you don't really know Christ, you're not, you, you, you know, this thing called Christianity is still kind of brand new to you, uh, please reach out to me. That's my email. It's going to come up right on the screens. Uh, please reach out. That's my personal email. You can email me there. I get all of those emails, but please reach out to me personally. I would love to just meet with you. And the purpose of this meeting is not only so that I can answer any questions that you might have about Christianity, um, but I also want to learn from you. So it's actually kind of selfish on my part. I actually want to learn from you more, and I just want to hear your heart and just see where you're at. So please do reach out to me if 
uh, if you kind of have the courage to do so. Um, but also if you have friends or family members or people who have been to New Life, who have been a part of our worship service, uh, and they're not Christian, encourage them uh, to reach out to me. I would love, love, love to meet them. Well, that's all the, uh, the, the initial announcements we have. Let's jump into our final passage in the book of Philippians, all right? We're, we're going to cover one whole chapter today. Initially, we broke this chapter up into three sections. We're going to take three weeks to cover, but, um, you know, due to uh, my child being born, Ezekiel, and having to miss a week, and then also our guest speaker kind of being a last-minute thing, uh, we, we shaved off two weeks off this series. It was initially going to be 10 weeks, but it's eight weeks, and so we're going to cover all of chapter four today, okay? So open up your Bibles, Philippians chapter four. We're going to go from two all the way to 23, and if you're able, would you rise uh, as we read God's word together? Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 23. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Um, I'll read this. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, I'll pray for us. Then afterwards, I'll seat you. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now uh, at length you have re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you, you sent me help for my needs once again, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Uh, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you, uh, God, for this time together. I need your help. God, we need your help. We need your help, God, to actually receive these words, to hear them with our full hearts, and really live them out, Lord. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're going to take a kind of 10,000 sky view look at this passage because we can't really get into the nitty-gritties. But in your community groups, you will study this passage in greater detail. 
Well, let me go ahead and open up with a story, uh, a story that I found and that I've heard before, but I'd kind of forgotten about. It says this, a wealthy businessman was horrified to see a fisherman sitting beside his boat playing with a small child. He's horrified. And he says, why aren't you out fishing? Asked the businessman. And the fisherman replied, because I caught enough fish for one day. Well, why don't, why don't you catch some more, says the businessman. Well, what would I do with them, says the fisherman. Oh, well, you could earn more money, said the businessman. Then with the extra money, you could buy a bigger boat, go into deeper waters, and catch more fish. Then you would make enough money to buy nylon nets, top-of-the-line technology. You can get those things. With the nets, you could catch even more fish and make even more money. With that money, you could own two boats, maybe three boats. Eventually, you could have a whole fleet of boats and be rich like me. The fisherman asked, then, then what would I do? After I've accumulated all this stuff, what would I do? Then, said the businessman, you could really enjoy life. The fisherman looked at the businessman quizzically and asked, what do you think I'm doing right now? You know, today we're looking at this final chapter in the book of Philippians called Be Glad in our series. And we're going to learn about this idea of contentment. The Apostle Paul, in my understanding of this passage, is going to tell us a ton about contentment. And what's interesting to me about contentment is contentment is very much like marriage. Okay? In our culture, there is this misconception that in order to have the perfect marriage, in order to have a strong marriage, what we have to do is go find that perfect person out there who's just right for me. Right? That's why many of you are on dating apps and you swipe left, you swipe left, you swipe left. Why? Because in your mind you think there is that perfect person right for me. If I find that perfect person outside of myself, then I'll have a great marriage. But for those of you who are married and, and for those of you who are not, here's the, wake up, here's the wake up call, here's the news, is that that's not what makes a marriage strong. What makes a marriage strong is what you do inside of the marriage, how you cultivate that marriage, how you serve one another, how you love one another, how you lay down your life, how you care for each other. That's what will make the marriage strong. It's not by finding the perfect person. It's actually by cultivating the marriage from inside out. The same is true of contentment. The same thing. See, we think the road to contentment is found in curating for ourselves the perfect right a perfect set of right circumstances. That's what we think contentment is. We think if, we, if I line up all of my circumstances just perfectly, I have enough money, I have a big house, I have a wife, I have kids, ma- then I'll be content. But what Paul tells us in our passage today is that the road to contentment is not actually found in finding the right set of circumstances, but rather by working on your mind. It's by working on your heart. It's by working on yourself and how you view the world. In fact, look what the Apostle Paul says in verse 11 and 12. We'll just look at the second half of verse 11. He says this, For I have learned, if, you're, if you have your Bibles open, underline that, learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned, he says. And then verse 12, read it again. Look, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in, every, in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Paul says here, you can learn contentment like you learn math. Do you know at one point in your life, you didn't know what two plus two was? You didn't know it equaled four. Did you know that? But at some point in your life, you learned math. 
At some point in your life, you learned the sciences. At some point, you learned English. You did not know, but you learned, and now you know. And now you have math skills. Now you have language skills. In the same way, Paul is saying, look, contentment is not something that just happens to you by accident. I think we believe that. Contentment is something that just kind of happens to us from the outside. But Paul is telling us, look, you can learn it. We think of contentment like a coconut, right? It just kind of falls on our head. Whoops, by accident. Now I'm content. No, no, no. He says you have to learn it. You have to study it. You have to be a student of contentment. Well, let me ask you, if you didn't study math, if you didn't learn social sciences, if you didn't learn geometry, what would have happened? Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. It's very simple. You wouldn't know math. You wouldn't know social sciences. And the reason why many of us in here don't know contentment is because we've never tried to learn contentment. Paul is saying contentment has to be learned. And so my question to you is kind of silly, but when's the last time you went to the University of Jesus Christ and you learned contentment? When's the last time? You know, I remember at UW, one of my, uh, my freshman year, my first class ever was this class called the Anthropology of Linguistics. I learned all about linguistics from this guy named Noam Chomsky, right? Well, I mean, he didn't teach me, but right, all I learned, all of the theories of Noam Chomsky. And I apologize if you're a linguistic major or if you're an anthro major or if you're a professor of those things. I apologize, but to be honest with you, I've never used that ever in my life. Never. It's never practically applied for me, ever. But I spent three months learning it week in and week out. Every day, anthropology, linguistics, every, for three months. Useless. <laughs> Paul is trying to teach us something that's the most practical thing for us. Look what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this about this passage. He says, the Apostle Paul, it'll be up here on the screens. The Apostle Paul was a very learned man, but not the least among his manifold acquisitions in science was this. He had learned to be content. Such learning is far better than much that is acquired in the schools. Their learning may look studiously back on the past, but too often those who call the relics of antiquity with enthusiasm are thoughtless about the present and neglect the practical duties of daily life. Their learning may open up dead languages to those who will never derive any living benefit from them. Far better the learning of the apostle. It was a thing of ever-present utility and alike serviceable for all generations. One of the rarest, but one of the most desirable accomplishments. I put the senior wrangler and the most learned of the Cambridge men in the lowest form compared with this learned apostle. For this surely is the highest degree in humanities to which a man can possibly attain to have learned in whatsoever state he is to be content. We've got to learn this. It's the most practical thing that you can do with your life. Look, this is why in verse 4, Paul can tell you. Paul actually commands you. It's an imperative. He's saying do that. He says rejoice in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. He's commanding you to do it. Like if I commanded you to walk across the room, you could walk across the room. Why? Because it's a choice. You can choose to be. You can choose rejoicing. Why? Because you can learn it. He says it again in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious. He's commanding you. It's a command. Don't be anxious. Jesus in Matthew 6 says the same thing. Don't be anxious. He commands you. Why? Because it's a choice. You can do it. You can learn how to be content. So how do we learn contentment? What are the steps for us to become a content people? And there's really four thoughts that I think Paul gives us in this passage, and these will serve as sort of our points, and they're four, they're quick points, um, but I think they'll teach us a little bit about contentment. So if you're taking notes, you can write these four things down. The first thing is this, change your thoughts. Change your thoughts. The second thing is this, call upon Jesus. Call upon Jesus. Third thing is care for others. 
care for others. And then fourthly, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Okay, so we'll work through these one by one as lessons from Paul about this idea of contentment. First thing is change your thoughts, okay? The first lesson is to change the way you think. You've got to be able to change the way you think. Look at verses 8 and 9, okay? And you're going to study this deeper in your community groups, but I'm just going to do a glossary sort of uh, a study over this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, he says, think, underline that, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That word for think is the word logizomai. It's where we get the word logic from. Okay, and this word think means it refers to the process of reasoning. It'll be up here for you. The process of reasoning or calculation or to the logical result arrived at by such process. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is, if you look at Eastern religions such as Buddhism, what they'll tell you is, if you want to find contentment, this is the key to contentment. Empty yourself. Empty your thoughts. Empty uh, your desires. Okay, walk the middle path where you have no desires and no thoughts. Just become nobody. Paul says something very different. He says, fill your mind. Think. Think like a mathematician thinks about solving a math problem. Like, use your brain power, he says. Use it like, a, like a st- uh, you know, somebody doing stats and like doing all these problems. Like, use your mind, meditate, think upon all those things that are lovely, commendable, worthy of praise, honorable, true. He says, think like a, like a mathematician about these things. See, the picture of contentment is not somebody doing yoga and, you know, trying to remove all sorts of desire and thoughts in their life. No, contentment is of a mathematician thinking their way through this, trying to think about all of these wonderful thoughts that the Lord has given to us. It is so easy for us to think about all the negative things in our life, isn't it? I know for each and every single one of you, it is so easy. You, you know what you do is actually the, the logic, the reasoning, that, that part of your brain, you use it really wonderfully when it comes to negative things in your life. In fact, I bet if I asked you, hey, what's wrong with your life? I bet you could tell me instantaneously, I'm single. That's what's wrong with my life. Oh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't make enough money. You, you could tell me instantly. But then if I asked you, what, 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 what do you have to thank for? It would take you time to generate stuff. Why? Because you use your logic and your reason to think about all the ways that your life is horrible and miserable. And I bet you if I asked you, you, it's because you've meditated upon it. Paul is saying flip that thinking around. Change it. Uh, do you remember in Numbers chapter 21, right? Pastor David Chong preached on the Exodus last week. And if you remember, right, God uh, saves them from Egypt out of slavery. He gives them a pillar of fire by uh, night. He gives them a pillar of cloud by day to just follow, right? This miracle happening before their eyes. He puts manna out every single morning. He has quail die midair and fall down on the ground so they could just pick up the quail and eat it. He has water springing forth from a rock. And then the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, they say this, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, but look at what they say next. And we loathe this worthless food. Which one is it, Israelites? Do you not have food or do you just hate the food that you have? They magnify the curses and they minimize the blessings. 
And we do this constantly. We magnify the, the curses and we minimize our blessings. We meditate on the curses of life, but we blind ourselves to the blessings. And this is why Paul says, flip your thinking. Change the way you think. Look, the reason why we focus in on what we don't have versus what we do have is mainly because of this thing that I believe we have called comparison. Comparison. In fact, I would go as far as to say the enemy of contentment is comparison. The enemy of contentment is comparison. You know what's crazy to me is I remember at one point, I, I got, you know, I kind of came late into the game for the iPhone stuff, right? Uh, I came in when it was on generation four, the iPhone four, okay? And I remember when I first got my first iPhone four, I was thinking, oh my God, this thing's a miracle. Like Steve Jobs is amazing, like Apple's amazing, hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? I loved it. And then guess what happened? The iPhone five came out and I looked at the iPhone five, I looked at my iPhone four, I was like, this is a piece of junk. I want the iPhone five. In fact, do you know, what, you know what happens nowadays? Apple has developed this culture where as you're buying a new phone, you already feel discontent. You know why? Because you're buying the Apple phone X, whatever, and you know that in one year's time or in six months' time, a new phone will come out, and so you're already discontent with the phone you already have. They show you something that you need, something that you don't have, and they show you, look at your phone. It's not as good as the next one. In fact, I believe Apple probably has iPhone 20 already made. They just release it little by little, improving it along the way, but they know ultimately what they want because they want you to compare your phone with another phone. You know, when I was um, first called into ministry, I was doing children's ministry, and I was teaching on contentment. And I remember I had this example where I asked the kids, hey, can I get a volunteer? And so all these you know, little kids raised their hands, and I chose this little girl. She was probably about first grade. She came up on stage. I sat her in a chair and I said, hey, man, you're awesome. You're wonderful. You're created in God's image. Here's a gift for you. And I just brought out this big M&M chocolate chip cookie. And I gave it to her. It was about this big. Gave it to her. I was like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. She was like happy. She was like, whoa. I was like, just for free? I was like, yeah, just for free. Take it. It's yours. She was happy. And then I said, can I get another volunteer? So more people raised their hand. And so I chose a girl that kind of looked like her. I chose a girl that kind of looked like her, same age, called her up on stage. I sat her down in another chair. I said the same thing. You're wonderful. You're special. You're creating God's image. I'm going to give you three cookies. I gave her three big M&M chocolate chip cookies, big ones. I gave it to her. As soon as I gave the three to the other girl, the one with the one looked at her and was like, how come she gets three? She had no cookie before this. She had zero cookies. She has one, but now she's looking at the girl with three, and she's like, what happened? Why do I only have one? And then after that, I called another volunteer. I said, can I get another volunteer? I, another girl raised her hand. I brought her up. I gave her five cookies. The girl with three looked at the five and said, why did she get five? Why? Because they were comparing themselves to each other. They started off with no cookies. They got a big cookie. They should be thankful. But comparison is what killed their gratitude, is what killed their contentment. This is why. Social media is the enemy of contentment. I'm serious. I mean, one pastor puts it like this. Social media is not a tool for building community. It is a tool for building comparison. And what's so horrible about social media, as one pastor puts it, is you are comparing people's highlight reels with your everyday life. And that builds this like craziness where you're like, why do they have all this stuff and I have nothing? But you realize you're comparing your regular life with their highlight reel. 
And you think you don't have enough. You don't think you're pretty enough. You don't think you're good enough. You don't think you have everything that you need because you keep comparing your normal life with their highlight reel. Look, I, I, I love the NFL. I go and watch, uh, you know, NFL highlight clips all the time. Occasionally, I'll go and watch Marshawn Lynch, right? You guys know he was a running back. I'll go and watch his highlight reels. It's crazy. He'll run like 50 yards every time in the highlight reel. But that doesn't, that's not his real career. He doesn't run 50 yards every time. He runs sometimes one, sometimes he gets negative yards, but we don't see that in the highlight reel. And that's what you're doing. You're comparing yourself to other people's highlight reel. Stop thinking about what you don't have. Begin thinking about those blessings that you do have in Christ Jesus. Begin thinking about it, meditating upon it, logically reasoning with yourself. Wow, I have this. God has blessed me with this. God has given me this. Man, like begin thinking about all these things with all logic, with all reason, and begin applying yourself to these practices. You know, what I think is fascinating is if you look at verse 2, Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't just talk about poor people? He doesn't say, oh, if you're poor, let me teach you how to be content. He says, if you're rich too, let me teach you how to be content. And actually, in my opinion, I believe that people who are rich have to learn how to be content even more. And I would argue that every single one of you, if you live here in America, you're rich beyond reason. We have plumbing. That makes us rich. There's so many parts of the world that don't even have basic plumbing. You are rich, and guess what? Rich people are never, ever content. This word for plenty there is actually used of vats of wine that are bursting at the seams because there's so much wine in it. It's used of a barn house so that, that's filled with wheat, that, so much wheat that the barn house is about to explode open because there's so much of it. There's so much, and yet you're not content. You don't know how to be happy. And I think this is something that riddles not the poor, but actually the rich. You know, John Milton, he's an English poet and intellectual from the 17th century, and he says this. He says, the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Let me say that again. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Did you know that you could have everything you've ever wanted in your life and still live in hell? And conversely, did you know you could be poor beyond measure and be happy and live, live like heaven exists, like heaven is real? You know, in Acts 16, there's this really interesting story of Paul planting the Philippian church. And he's going to this prayer sanctuary every day with Silas. He gets up, he goes over to this prayer sanctuary, and behind him comes this demon-possessed slave girl. This demon-possessed slave girl keeps yelling at the top of her lungs, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She keeps yelling this at the top of her lungs. Day in and day out, for weeks at a time, she keeps following Paul and Silas. She keeps yelling. Finally, Paul gets so annoyed, he turns around, he rebukes the spirit out of her, he cleanses her of the spirit. But what happens is this slave girl was actually owned by these owners who were utilizing her demon possession to, to build a fortune-telling company. And so they lose their girl who can tell the, tell the future, and so they lose their fortune, and therefore, what do they do? They grab Paul and Silas, they beat them up, they strip them naked, they shame them in front of all these people, they put them in prison, jail them, wrongfully accused, and leave them there to die. And look what, look what verse uh, 25 of chapter 16 says. About midnight, this is remarkable, this is crazy. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were in hell. 
they were stripped of all their possessions. They were stripped of their status. They were stripped. They were wrongfully accused. They were sitting there in prison singing to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Not only that, but God ends up freeing not just Paul and Silas. He frees all the prisoners. He ends up opening up all the prison cells. The, the jail guard is like, man, I'm dead. I'm screwed. All these people escaped. The Romans are going to kill me. He tries to take his own life. Paul and Silas stop him, preach the gospel to him, change and transform him and save him with the love of Christ. That's who the Apostle Paul was in the midst of hell itself. He's preaching the gospel with joy and sincerity of heart. Wrongfully accused, beaten, jailed, shamed, and yet filled with heaven itself. And yet let me show you another picture. Okay, I found this video on Facebook. And as I watched this video, I not only was disgusted, I was not only angered, but I saw a part of us, a part of me, a part of what we're like. So why don't you take a look at this video? Today, guys, we have some really important news. The iPhone XS came out today. And I'm going to ask my mom. I'm going to tell my mom I won it. Hey, Ma. What? Hey, I have a question. What? Mom. The new iPhone XS is released. Can I get it? No way. What's wrong with your phone? Yes, it is, Mom. Is it working? Yes, but it's very slow. No. Mom! Absolutely not, Vince. There's what? no way you're pregnant. Come on. No. When am I due for an upgrade? Like not for six months. Oh my god, Mom. Please. No. I said no, that's it. Stop asking. God, why? Why? Yeah! Because you're not I'm not paying for another phone. Mom, come on! No! Whatever! Yeah, whatever. Hey, Mom? What? I have to show you something. What? Let me back to work. moving. Stop moving? You won't let me get it? I'm gonna smash Don't it. Don't you dare! Don't you dare! You won't let me get it? Can I get it? Nope. Really? Nope. I hate this phone. Whoa, don't throw it in the pool! Then you need excess now? Nope. Yeah, you are. <laughs> First service, we have a bunch of uh, parents and young kids, and, and uh, I could hear the dads just wanting to beat him from inside their minds. They were like, oh my gosh, if that was my son, he would not be living today. Let me go ahead and read that quote from John Milton again. He says, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and the hell of heaven. The Apostle Paul, rotting in jail, wrongfully accused, beaten, shamed, and singing praises to the Lord. And you have this kid who has everything he's ever needed in his life. He's even got a swimming pool. And he's over there living like it's hell. You know, I, 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 I love this video. I love that video because, honestly, if I, if I look at it, I'm, I'm actually looking at a picture of my own self. And sometimes I can be rotten, spoiled. I complain, I whine, even though I have the best luxuries that life could provide. I've lived better than all the people that's ever lived before me. In history itself, we've, we've never had more than today. This leads us to our second point, to call upon Jesus. Call upon Jesus. All right, this, here's a second lesson to contentment. 
call upon Jesus or pray. That's how you become content. See, when Paul says to think about those things that are lovely and commendable, okay, Paul is not saying, okay, be a blind to reality. Like if you're going to go bankrupt, just forget about it. Just, you know, close your ears, close your eyes, and pretend like you're not going to go bankrupt. He's not saying, hey, if your mom and dad are really sick, they're about to die, like just cover your ears, cover your eyes, and just pretend like all of that's not happening. Just focus it on the lovely things. He's not saying, hey, if you're bad at, you know, computers and you're just trying to convince yourself, I'm the best at computers. Like he's not saying be blind to reality. In fact, he says meditate upon what's true. Like face reality itself. Like you have to face reality. You have to face what's true. But then Paul says, look, if you want to face reality, he says lift up those realities to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But he says in prayer. But in, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says. When you pray, let's just say you're facing something difficult, and you want to face it, and you pray to God. God, What he says is this. God's not going to give you exactly what you want. He doesn't say when you pray to God and you make your request known, God will give you all the desires of your heart. He doesn't say that. He says, when you pray, God will give you something called peace. And it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that can't be comprehended. In other words, what Paul is saying is take the geniuses of our day. Take the smartest people and they will never be able to understand with their rational minds why you have so much peace. That's how much peace you have. In fact, the peace that he says that we will have is a peace of God. Meaning this, it's God's peace. It's the peace that God actually has with the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's God's own peace that you will have. I don't know, I can't tell you exactly how this works, but I know that if you pray, God will supply you with all the peace that you need. See, one of the reasons why you are not content, the reason why you're always striving and chasing after more material possessions is because you don't pray. You don't lift up your requests to the Lord with thanksgiving. You're constantly complaining and wondering how you can get this, get that, but you never lift it up to the Lord. And he says, look, pray, seek the Lord, and he will give you a peace. And this peace, he says, will guard you. It will guard your hearts from what? From anxiety. It will guard your hearts from discontentment. It will guard your heart from coveting more and more and more. It will guard your heart from wanting to compare yourself to other people. Lift up your request to the Lord, and this peace that the Lord will bring you will guard your hearts. Look, I wanted to list out all of these ways that you could pray and all these things that you should do and why you should do them, but let's, I just want to keep it real simple here. If you want to learn contentment, you've got to pray. Verse 9, later on, he says, practice these things. And I'm imagining that Paul is saying all these things. Practice it. Do it again and again and again. Think, meditate, pray and pray. And he says, practice these things again and again and again. If you walk away with anything practical from this message, it is to wake up every morning and to journal and to think and to put logic to to use and to think about all those things that are lovely. But then also to pray, but to pray daily and to ask the Lord and to trust him with all of your problems, to trust him with your anxieties so that the peace of God may surround you. Here's a third lesson in contentment. Care for others. Care for others. 
Look at verse 2 and 3. We sort of overlooked this, but I, I think this is very important. He says, I entreat. Or he's saying, like, I plead with you, please, Yodia, and I entreat, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. You have to understand, okay, Paul, again, I have to remind you, is writing from prison. He was in prison at the beginning of his Philippian journey when he was planting the church. But here again, he's imprisoned. He's jailed. And mind you, he's chained to a Roman guard. And it's, it's not like he's uh, in the cell, like modern day cells, where they have, uh, you, you know, human rights and all this. No, he's, he's in a Roman jail cell where they barely feed him, where they barely give him any food and water. There's no sewage. There's no plumbing. So he's probably living with his own stuff. Right? He's not able to eat. He's probably skin and bones. He's probably being beaten here and there. And he writes caring for other people. He says, look, please, I, I plead with you, like, like, like Yodi and Syntyche, like, make up and, like, help them, please. Like, do you see what he's doing? He's caring for other people in the midst of his own storm. It's crazy. In fact, throughout the book of Philippians, you never, ever once, if you've been tracking with us, you never, ever once hear Paul saying, like, oh, man, my situation's so bad, man. Please, man, help me. He never says that. Never once. In fact, that's why we know so little bit about his imprisonment because he never writes about it. He's so concerned about others. You know, there have definitely been seasons in my ministry where I, I have faced darkness. There have been dark seasons in my life. And during those dark seasons, guess what I want to do? I want to do what all the rest of you want to do, which is to close my door in my room and just, you know, huddle up in my blankets and just not see anybody. Turn on the TV, zone out, and not think about anything. That's what I want to do. And yet you see Paul here in the midst of darkness, in the midst of prison, writing and caring for others. This is somebody who's found contentment. See, caring for others is not only a sign of contentment. So if you see people caring for others in the midst of the darkness, it means that they're content. But it's also a way for you to become more content. And here's the reason why. Okay, I, I heard this, and I don't know if it's true, but I heard many, if you go and dine at high-end restaurants, many high-end restaurants will actually feed their wait staff first before opening it up to their customers. And the reason why is because they don't want hungry servers to wait on hungry people because a lot of bad things could happen. They, you know, they're whatever they have, you know, they're hangry, they're all this stuff, right? So not only physically, but also they, they realize that content full servers actually serve better. Why? Because they're not trying to get their own. They're not trying to think about themselves. Once they're full, they're able to think about other people. And in the same way, if you're full with the love of Christ, if you're full spiritually, your natural inclination will be to turn your eyes outward and be like, well, I don't need anything. Like, I don't need anything else. Like, I'm perfectly content. Well, what do they need? What do they need? What do they need? How can I serve them? What can I do? And this is the mark of a content person. And although this is a sign of contentment, I believe it is also a lesson in it. If we care for others above ourselves, we will actually become more content. It's sort of like when you eat healthy, right? You begin eating healthy so that you lose weight. But as you lose weight, as you become more healthy, you actually enjoy eating healthy foods. And that's actually a sign that you're getting healthier is when you actually enjoy eating organic, you know, plants, whole stuff, right? It's, it's a sign that you're becoming healthier, but also a means for you to get healthier. And I, I plead with you, I, I entreat you, just like Paul does, to, to care for each other, to put others above yourself, to find contentment within, but then to look out and to see the needs of other people. Because I'm telling you, if you lift up your head just for a second, 
you will see the unbelievable needs and hurts around you. As a pastor, as I, I just have to lift my head just a little bit outside of myself, and I begin realizing there are so many broken and lost people. And it breaks my heart sometimes. I lift my head up and I just look around, and that's why sometimes I look back down. So I'm like, man, there's too many. Lift your heads and look around you. This is the third lesson in contentment, to care for others. Here's the fourth and final thing. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. You know, I, 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 I'm just telling you once again, like, do these things. Practice these things. Verse 9, practice these things. Practice these things. Just like golf, just like basketball, just like piano, just like playing the guitar, just like anything else in life. You have to practice these things to learn them. And I, I really, I do, I plead with you, practice these things. Think differently. Pray. Consider others. Care for others. But here's the final thing. It's to consider Christ as everything. It's to consider Christ as everything. You know, I, I want you to take a look at this. I'm going to kind of spit out a lot of verses at you, but I'm, I'm leading somewhere, okay? Look at verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, rejoice in the Lord. Notice the in the Lord, okay? Verse 7. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus. Verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord. In the Lord, okay? Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, okay? This is just in chapter 4, mind you, okay? Uh, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, okay? In Christ Jesus. Now, if you read Paul's letters, you notice this language a lot, actually. It's not just in Philippians. It's in Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. He always says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, and so scholars read this language and they're like, what's going on here? And a lot of people sort of gloss over it. They don't think very much of it. They think it's just some metaphorical language. But in actuality, the reason why Paul says in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, is because what he's saying is that when Jesus Christ died for your sins, when he paid the price for your sins, when he saved you out of death and into life, what he also did is he baptized you into himself. Meaning it is a spiritual reality that you are actually in Christ. You're actually in Christ. It's not just some language. You are literally spiritually in Christ. Now, this doctrine is called, um, I apologize, mis the mystical union with Christ. This is real language that theologians use. And I know it sounds strange, but it's, it's a real doctrine. And it's sort of like the Trinity. We don't know really how it works. We don't really know, but we know a few things, which is that when you're saved, you're in Christ Jesus. In fact, if you read John 15, right, Jesus tells us that uh, we are the branches and he's the vine and we are to be in him. We are to be abiding in him, right? If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Corinthian church is sleeping around. In fact, the men of the Corinthian church have all decided to sleep with prostitutes. And so Paul says, knock it off. Stop sleeping with prostitutes. Why are you doing that? And the reason he gives is he says, look, you are members of Christ. Literally, you are part of Christ. You are in Christ. Like, knock it off. Why? Because if you're in Christ, but you're sleeping with a prostitute, it's like you're joining Christ and this prostitute together. So he says, look, you're in Christ. It's a spiritual reality that Paul sees. Now, why is this a big deal for us? Think about it like this, okay? Some of you here really love to go to Las Vegas, and you love just being in Las Vegas. Why? Because you love the lights, you love the shows, you love food, you love buffets, you love, um, you know, all the stuff that Las Vegas consists of. And so just being in Las Vegas gives you some kind of joy. For some of you, it's Disneyland. You love Disney. 
You love Elsa and Anna. You love Aladdin, you know, and, and just being in Disneyland, you're around all of that stuff. You're in Disneyland. What Paul is saying here is you're in Christ. Your spirit resides in Christ. See, as Christians, we always use this language of Jesus Christ lives in me. Jesus Christ lives in me. But Paul is saying, look, more often Paul says you are actually in Christ. And all the things you love about Christ are accessible to you. You love Jesus' mercy, his grace, his holiness, his justice, his love, all of those things. You're in him. And you have access to all of those things by being in Christ. You are in the very presence of Christ. Your soul has been craving meaning. Your soul has been craving purpose. Your soul has been craving acceptance and love. And now that you are in Christ, you have all of that. And Christ is enough for you because you are found in Christ. Friends, as you are in Christ, your soul should be filled to the brim and joy should overflow because you have Christ himself. You know, I... Uh, I want to close with this story, but you know, recently um, I've had this struggle with cookies. Okay, I bought my son these Costco-sized packs of cookies. I don't know if you know they have these little tiny cookies all in this box. They have like 200 of them, and so I bought it for my son. But every night I'll go myself and I'll pick out a few and eat them myself. And I've been wanting to stop, but um, but during uh, you know during our uh, first two months of having our son. The, the pastors across the street at the Korean ministry site, all of their wives got together and they bought us this subscription to this Korean food uh, person. Okay? She like just makes all this Korean food. And she lives like five minutes away from us, so we just go pick it up. It's all these soups and dishes and side dishes. And it, it's amazing. And one of the things is, I'll describe this to you, and I, you can tell I love food, is that there are some foods right, that just hit your head. Right? It goes from your taste buds to your head. And that's great, right? There's some foods that go from your taste buds to your head to your stomach, and that's great. It'll fill you up, right? But there's some foods that'll go from your head, from, from your mouth to your head, to your stomach, and then to your heart. You know what I mean? That's what you call soul food, right? For me personally, soul food is my motherland food. It's, a, it's Korean cuisine for me. And anytime I get a chance to eat Korean, uh, Korean cuisine, it, it just it fills up my soul. Like, seriously does. And uh, so this, you know, this lady, you know, we go over, we pick up these dishes from her, and she's cooked something called kimchi jjigae, which is basically a kimchi soup with, like, sausages and spam and other goodies inside. And, um, and, and I remember my wife heated it up for me. She put it before me. She had a bowl of rice. And that was it. I just had this kimchi jjigae and rice. And I just started eating. And I kid you not, my wife was, my wife was probably disturbed because I made so many noises eating this dish. I was like, oh, oh, why, why is this so good, right? And I just kept eating and eating. I think I ate that bowl within a few minutes and my tongue was burned, my mouth was searing on fire, but I just loved every moment of it because uh, I was just filling up my soul. Like literally my soul was just being filled up. I kid you not, th this is a true story. I, that night I go over to the cookie jar, right? I'm like, oh, I need a cookie. I go over. I open up the cupboard where our cookies are, I bring out the cookie jar, and I, I'm not kidding, like, I, I was like, I don't want this. I was like, I don't want this. And I started reflecting on why I don't want the cookies, and I was like, you know, it's because I'm full, I'm like satisfied. It's weird, like, I'm not like full, like, to the, to the point where my stomach's about to explode, but I'm just like content. Like, and that brought up a whole nother issue. I was like, well, am I using cookies to like, you know, do something to my soul, or like, you know, but, but at some point I realized, man, like, I'm, I'm full, I'm satisfied, I'm content. I don't need anything else. 
And you see, I'm, I'm telling you this because this is what Christ, when, you, when you get into a relationship with Christ, Christ is everything your soul has ever needed. Christ is everything your soul has been longing for. Your soul longs for acceptance. Your soul longs for love. Your soul longs for purpose. And God, Christ comes and he gives you all of these things and more. When he died upon the cross, he didn't just save you. He brought you into himself. And you have access to all of this stuff. Make Christ your everything. Find your satisfaction in him. And guess what? Even though you lose your house, even though you lose your car, even though you lose the shirt off your back, even though your skin begins to fall off your body, for goodness sakes, you will have peace and contentment that the world cannot understand. You will find peace and contentment because you found everything in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. I know for most of us in here including myself the first thing we need to do Lord is to confess our sins to you Lord myself included God we've been so discontent with our lives we've been so discontent with our jobs with our relationship status with our kids with our spouses with our homes and Lord we're sorry we apologize because Lord we're, we're actually spitting in your face Lord we're just saying you're not a good God but Lord, we ask you now to teach us once again. Be our master teacher. Be our professor, Holy Spirit, and come and teach us. Help us to learn what it is to be content once again. Fill us up with the love of Christ. Fill us up with the acceptance. Fill us up with Him and all of Him. And God, may we find absolute peace and contentment in knowing, cherishing, and loving Jesus Christ. May He become our all in all. May He become everything to us. May there be nothing else in this life besides Him and Him alone. And Holy Spirit, would you shine a great big light onto Christ so that we might worship Him, adore Him, and fill our souls up with Him and Him alone. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.